It's great to have you joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman coming to you in August of 2023 from Atlanta in the Muscogee Creek Territory in the Piedmont region that's in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountain Range. Today, we're going to be talking about the book, Advocating for the Environment, How to Gather Your Power and Take Action, with its author, environmental lobbyist and organizer, Sue Inches. In this double show today, we'll have more time to cover lots of the book's advocacy advice, such as the power of being visionary, the importance of reframing our Earth stories and values, bridging partisan politics, effective lobbying of decision makers, reasons to be hopeful for environmental change, and steps you can take to get active. Let me tell you about our guest, Sue Inches. She's worked in public policy for over 25 years. She holds a bachelor's in human ecology from College of the Atlantic and an MBA from the University of New Hampshire. As deputy director of the state planning office in Maine, she conducted research, designed and led public engagement processes, and lobbied on behalf of the governor. Her key achievements include establishing Maine's uniform building and energy code and writing legislation to establish a state agency called Efficiency Maine. Prior to this, Sue worked as director at the Department of Marine Resources. Sue also chaired the Board of Coastal Enterprises, a community finance development corp providing funding to low-income areas in Maine and nationally. Sue now works as an author, consultant, teacher, and advocate with a focus on the environment and climate change. She developed and teaches a course called Advocating for the Environment at several colleges and offers public workshops on the topic. She's an avid outdoors person who lives on a small farm in Maine. Her website is sueinches.com. In 2021, she published the book Advocating for the Environment, How to Gather Your Power and Take Action. Michael Brune, executive director of the Sierra Club, said, quote, Sue Inches clearly has the know-how to advocate effectively for environmental change, and she's ready to share it. Smart, strategic, and genuinely empowering, her book is one that activists everywhere will come back to again and again. We're here to talk about the book's ideas today. Welcome, Sue. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, and before we get started, let's tell everybody how we met because we were at an environmental conference and we were staying in the dorms on this uh, campus at James Madison and we were mutually blanketless. <laughs> That's right. We were really cold, actually, those nights. It was very good air conditioning and and just a sheet uh, yeah. on, on the bed. <laughs> Yeah, it was so, like we had just had a long day at our conference because it's a conference on communication and the environment at James Madison. And it was a fantastic conference. It's hosted by the International Environmental Communication Association. So we'd had a long first day uh, or maybe it was the second day or something. Anyway, and we you and I had walked back to the dorms together where some of the um, attendees were staying. And but like we had complained, you know, earlier, like, oh, gosh, none of us got a blanket. We only have sheets and like some thin towels and like a very stark dorm room um and so and like a flat pillow and everything so it was kind of an uncomfortable first night so then we got on the landline phone in the lobby and we were like lobbying to get a blanket <laughs> from like some of the with the student workers and everything and then I think all we managed to do the first night they would they really tried but all they could do was give us more sheets and towels although I was happy to have the extra towels because um, I accidentally, one of my towels had like got dumped in the, got wet in the toilet because there was no cover, no like lid on the toilet. So I was like, oh no, I'm only down to one towel. So, 
but you got on, like you asked some people again the next day. And then suddenly the, like later that day, a blanket showed up at my door and it was like, you know, Christmas to me. I was like, what? Um, (laughs) Yep. It was all about finding the right person to ask, I think. Yes, because maybe that first night we were dealing with just the people who were on staff and they were trying, but they couldn't find any blankets. And then I think I even got another blanket. So then I was like, you know, overly excessive blankets I had. So then I was able to share. But you were able to get blankets for all of us because that was kind of part of what they said we would get. So, I mean, I know people have it a lot worse than than us at that, but it was just kind of a funny little anecdote for us to start chatting with each other. And talking, and I found out you were a radio host. Yes. Yeah. And I had seen you also at the, I was also, I think I was the facilitator of one of the conference presentations that you were part of too. That's, that's so I right. heard you talk and I saw that you had a book and so wanted to invite you on the show. So yeah, let's talk about your book. Now in reading the book's introduction, I could see how important the notion of being visionary is. Can you explain how you see the role of vision to advocating for the environment? Well, so yes. Um, So every successful movement has uh, a vision behind it. And the most, um, I guess, well-known example of this would be Martin Luther King, right? Who had a vision where all black children and white children would be, you know, living in harmony together. And this is the vision that really held together the civil rights movement. And I think the same thing is true for the environmental movement. Um, Environmentalists actually have been accused of uh, often of being against everything. And the fact is, is that we do have a vision. We just need to articulate it more. But basically, it's really important to have that vision of how we live in harmony and in connection with each other and with the earth. That's the vision is is what we want is the future that's healthy, it's compassionate, and we understand that we're all in this together as human beings on this planet. So vision is really important. And I get really excited, actually, when I think about a future where we all appreciate the uniqueness of each person and we think that each person brings a unique something to this life, it's really exciting. And so that's that's the importance of vision is having that uh, energy and excitement around what we could create together. So like, because that way it's more about being pro and not necessarily all con, even though it's you've, everyone's a bit of both, right? You've got to stop doing some things and replace it with something else. But like getting people excited about the those replacements or those, you know, more of the better way of doing things and what the benefits will be. And I actually like I do a exercise in my environmental class. We always end the year with this moral vision statement where I want them to think about like 50 or 100 years from now. It might even be when they're not even alive anymore, but just like what is the ideal future that you're putting together? Because if you know what that is and what would our, how would we get our energy? How would we relate to other animals? How would we get around? What would we be eating? Like if you just kind of imagine that as an ideal, then that changes the way you talk now about what we should do because you know where we're going. You're not just talking about the problems. That's actually right. In fact, um, there are some researchers who've said that a vision in a way, it it pulls us into the future. Yeah. Um, One of the uh, metaphors that's used is it's like a rubber band that's being stretched. Mm -hmm. The vision is stretching us and pulling us towards the future that we want. So that's, that's, you're very right on with what you're saying about that. 
And related to this notion of vision, I was intrigued in your book by the 80-10-10 rule. I had not heard of that in terms of categorizing and prioritizing how we should spend our time and our social change efforts. Can you explain the 80-10-10 rule? Yes, absolutely. So the 80-10-10 rule actually came from um, a Penobscot leader in Maine. She's actually a leader in her tribe here in, in Maine. And what she's basically saying, it's Sherry Mitchell is the name of the leader who came up with this. What she's saying is that put 10% of your energy into identifying what the problems are, put 10% into fixing what the problems are, but put 80% of your time and energy into creating the future you want. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is the right balance. It is important, of course, to know what our problems are. It is important to address them. But the more important thing is to be creating the future. And we all are doing that, whether we know it or not. But I think this rule makes it a more intentional uh, activity is, you know, we need to be focused on creating that future. That's interesting, because probably there's, you know, that those last two things get conflated a lot, or they overlap, right? Fixing problems and implementing solutions, right? Or, you know, like figuring out like, okay, if we want a future that has a lot of organic plant-based foods, then maybe we need to be starting community gardens or making space for these things. Um, I don't know how you might like differentiate the nuances there between not getting stuck in just fixing problems, but also spending 80% of our time creating the future we want. Well, you know, it's really interesting. When I look back at my own career um, as an environmental advocate and lobbyist, I discovered that almost all the initiatives that I worked on have been about creating something. Yeah. So for example, you know, one of the things that was happening in Maine was that the fishermen were losing access to the water. You know, you can't have a fishing career if you can't get on the water, right? So they were losing that. That was the problem. But what we did a group of us uh, coalition that worked on this is we created a way to preserve fishing waterfront facilities. Um, and that we needed to create that because there was no way to do that. What was happening was the fishermen were selling their waterfront property when they wanted to retire because that was their biggest asset, right? So they'd sell their pier, their waterfront, and they'd um, move to Florida to retire. And then in that case, uh, that property would leave fishing forever. Somebody would build a restaurant or a hotel or a summer home and no longer would fishermen have access to the water. So what we did is we created solutions to that. We created a way that fishermen could sell their development rights, um, but that the agreement in selling development rights was that the property would forever remain uh, a fishing pier. So that's what I mean. It's like you're, you're looking for ways to create the future that's going to be different from what's in front of you. Yeah. And I suppose it's like, even with the example I gave that if some of the problems with the farming now would be like, okay, trying to, the fixing it would be maybe outlawing factory farming or trying to get rid of the chemicals used, but then the 80% of the time could instead be used like, okay, well, let's create those organic crops, like, and start doing that farming or enabling people to do it. So like all of those things are productive, but yeah, I hadn't spent thought as much about that nuance of what does it mean to be creating the future versus just kind of trying to resolve the problems you see now. So well, here's another really current example is um is energy because yeah. you know we know that fossil fuels are a big problem 
<laughs> we know that we need to do some things to stop, you know, uh, exploring and drilling and putting more fossil fuel infrastructure in place. But isn't it like extremely important to create alternative sources of energy that we can yes. access and use? Yes. I mean, I think it's really important. We have to have wind. We have to have solar. There are people working on nuclear fusion. We have to do all those things so that we can replace fossil fuels with something else. And I think that's a great example. You can't just take away fossil fuels, right? Yes. You have to replace it with something else. Right. And related to that vision of the future we want and making that vision a reality, the notion of stories and cultural identity is so foundational. In your Advocating for the Environment book, you address that in chapter three titled Earth Stories and Why They Matter. Can you tell us what some of the outdated Earth stories are that could be um, that could use updating because these stories of how the earth works or who's central, either those stories never served us or they don't anymore. That's right. So we're all holding stories about the earth, uh, both individual ones and collective stories as well. And what I talk about in that chapter is how some of these collective stories are completely outdated. Um, and an example of that is how we used to think that pretty much any kind of pollution we had would just be absorbed by the earth and collect, you know, corrected by the earth's balancing systems. And I think that might've been true when our population was much, much less than it is now. And so one of the examples I tell in that chapter is how, you know, when I was a kid, there was raw sewage, you know, basically a stream of it running into the harbor uh, where our family had a summer home. And I asked my father about that. I said, you know, like, what, what happens with this? Like, wh what's going on? And he said, oh, well, you know, the sewage goes in and the sand underneath it um, filters out the bad things and then it gets cleaned and then it goes into the harbor and everything's okay. Well, if you have just a small amount of sewage, maybe that works. But now with a population of over 300 million people in this country and, and, and billions in other countries, that just won't work anymore. You know, that that story is outdated. We can't expect to just basically throw our pollution onto the ground and it'll be fine. So we have to really change that story and say, no, wait a minute. Now we're in a place where um, humanity is caring for the earth and it's all connected. And we know that we have to clean up after ourselves um, in a way that we didn't have to in the past. So these stories are changing and they need to change more. And underneath all of this is a sense of um, that we are all connected, that humanity, other life forms, animals, plant life, and the earth is all interconnected. And I think this story is emerging. People are actually starting to understand this better. And so we can't act as if we're separate and that we can just sort of do whatever we want and it won't matter uh, to other forms of life. So this is this is the shifting of, of the big collective earth stories that's going on. Yeah, and I like how you mentioned separateness because that was another thing you lit you listed as kind of an outdated story as just kind of us being these humans and then everyone else, everything else is like a natural resource or something, as opposed to us seeing ourselves as more integrated, like as an animal, as an earthling on the planet or something. So, and I do think we talk a lot in that anthropocentric way. Uh, yeah. A lot about the earth kind of being here for humans or something um, without really remembering that there's so many other beings on the planet that it's not a planet. It's not just a human planet. 
Right. And the thing about this, of course, is that it's all related to a to a worldview that has like a hierarchy with humans at the top of it. That that's the old story, actually. The old way of looking at things is that it's all a hierarchy and we're the highest life form. And I think now people are beginning to understand that other life forms are very sophisticated as well. It's not it's not a hierarchy with us at the top. It's we're part of a large system that is actually supporting us. I mean, we can't live without food, without plants, without water, without animals. So I think, you know, that's starting to break down. But the old story was the humans were in charge. We were on top of everything. And then we could basically conquer the wild earth, you know. Right. And that's also the colonial mentality yeah. as well. That's kind of dominion. Um, and a lot of that also can come from our religions because religions often tell origin stories. And so some people uh, who are Christian might look at the um, Adam and Eve Genesis story in terms of dominion rather than stewardship or, you know, something like that, of, like this notion of us being in charge instead of us being part of nature. Like it's a, it's also how you choose to interpret religious origin stories. That's so true. And and there are a lot of um, religious faiths that are very hierarchical and do look at, um, you know, our existence in that kind of way. But I think what we're moving towards is a more um, connected, um, um, connected way of, of looking at the earth. In fact, there's great interest um, in native uh, and indigenous kinds of wisdom, which tend to be much more about how all life forms are uh, akin to us, that we're all part of something, something alive and larger than than who we are. So I think I, that's that's shifting. But you're right, we have some traditions that were very much um, the old hierarchical way. And sometimes I think it helps to even I'll, I'll talk to my students about how little amount of how human time on Earth, Earth is kind of a blip in the life story of earth. Cause I, it's a very recent phenomenon. Like, you know, if you use a metaphor of a football field or a clock, it's like right before midnight or right at the end zone is when humans really are around. Cause that's another way of just giving us some perspective mm -hmm. that the earth did not start and it won't end with us. You know, like that, that's a little, we need to be humbled, I think, to get to that interconnection uh, mm -hmm. that you're talking about uh, that sees us more as integrated as a species on the planet you know that some came before us and even when we're gone there'll be other species after us and the earth still has a purpose beyond just us yeah i think that's right yeah well you're listening to radio free georgia this is in tune to nature i'm host carrie freeman talking with author and environmental lobbyist and organizer Sue Inches about her book titled Advocating for the Environment. Her website is sueinches.com. Uh, Sue, these various earth stories and worldviews often fall along party lines, and I was glad to see your book has a chapter addressing how to bridge the left and the right. Can you speak to that challenge of effective environmental advocacy in a partisan society? I sure can. In fact, we could probably spend the whole rest of our show. Absolutely, talking about we could. <laughs> um, but it's really interesting. One of the things I do with my students is I have them look at these two different worldviews, one of which is more about 
focus on the individual, which tends to be more conservative leaning po politically. And the other is looking at the collective, which tends to be more liberal leaning politically. And the really interesting thing about this is that depending on which stance you take, the um, policies to solve a problem are different. So I'll give you an example of this. So an example would be if you had a, um, let's say a city intersection where there was a really high number of traffic accidents and you wanna do something about that, you wanna create a public policy to solve the problem. Well, if you are on the individual side, then you think the cause of that problem is uh, people are driving too fast, people are uh, not being respectful of others on the road. And so it's an individual problem. So what we need to do to solve that individual problem is uh, lower the speed limit and enforce the speed limit more. So it's, a, it's an individual problem and an individual solution. If you're on the other side of this, of this issue in the collective sense, what you'd see is that the intersection needs to be redesigned so that it's safe for all uses that there isn't an adequate bike lane, that the pedestrian um, you know, places, the crosswalks are not yeah. placed in the right place. And so you'd say, wow, you know, it's not about individuals speeding too fast. It's about the road being like poorly designed and causing accidents. So what we're gonna do to solve the problem from this point of view is we're gonna, we're gonna do some changes to the design of the intersection and we're gonna make the crosswalks more visible and we're gonna put in a bike lane here and we're gonna make it so that accidents are much less likely because we've taken up you know, the safety aspects and fixed those. So there you have just one example of how the public policy solution is completely different depending on what your worldview is, whether you're on the left or on the right. So that's one of the things I like to show my students is that you need to see these different worldviews. And then once you understand that, you can work with the different constituencies to come up with effective policy solutions. So that's kind of a policy answer to this question. But yeah. of course, people are really interested in how do you bridge the left and the right? I get asked this question all the time. How do I talk to somebody who holds a different worldview than I do? Like I have a, an uncle or a cousin who doesn't believe in climate change. How do, how do I talk to him or her? And so the answer to that question is, it's really about learning and talking about experiences, people's personal experiences. It's not about politics. If you go into politics, you get into a fight, right? But rather, the thing to do is to find out what people's experience is. So you might say to somebody, gosh, um, you don't um, believe in climate change. Well, have you noticed any changes though in, in where you live, you know, that might be due to the weather or climate? What, you know, are there any changes and what are those and, and why do you think that's happening? And then someone might talk about, well, you know, I'm a, I like to fish and um, the fishing just isn't as good as it used to be. The water is too warm and the trout are not there or whatever it is, but it's getting to those personal experiences that cuts through all of the political rhetoric and that sort of stuff. We don't need that stuff. What we need to do is connect as human beings. And so, you know, the very first step, I mean, I do whole workshops on bridging the left and the right. You know, you can come and we can work on it for three hours. But bottom line is you're trying to connect with human beings as if they're human beings. So if there's someone who has a reason to deny climate change, it might be interesting to find out where that's coming from. Um, and so that's the thing to do is talk about, well, that's interesting. What, what, what makes you feel that way? Um, and so to try to get underneath all of the political uh, stuff. 
So I can go on and on about this, but that's that's a basic idea that I also uh, teach. And I know that you also draw upon uh, George Lakoff's uh, metaphors that he has as um, conservatives being, it's a parental metaphor of conservatives being more like a strict father parenting model. Mm-hmm. And then progressives are more of a nurturing parent mm-hmm. model. How do you, how does understanding those two parenting models, maybe also the individual versus the collective, whatever frames you want to have, does that help you frame issues effectively? Um, I mean, I can see how it could help you frame if you better understood how someone thought about something like coming from a strict father perspective, you could frame for them. But if you're wanting to bridge between those two types of parents, like you could also say, okay, if there's a father and a mother or another partner of any gender, <laughs> uh, one's more nurturing and one's stricter, how do they parent the same child? And the, that same child is the earth, right? Or the society. Like, how do you get those two parenting styles to work together? That's a tough question, but of <laughs> course it comes down to um, listening and trying to correct craft solutions that kind of meet the needs of, of people on both ends, if you can. Not always possible, but um, definitely important to, to realize that there are these differing worldviews and that you do need to do what you can to try um, to meet them as well as you can. And like with the strict parent or conservative uh, worldview, it may focus on what personal freedoms are being lost rather than on what collective benefit is being gained. Do you have any idea how to address that kind of gain versus loss issue? Because you sometimes you see this, like if we're trying to protect endangered species or we're trying to switch over to um, better light bulbs that are energy efficient, sometimes uh, some people who identify more as conservative might say, well, don't take away my old light bulbs or I, you know, I used to hunt or log in this area and I want to still do that. Like, as opposed to maybe seeing the benefit of what's being gained because people don't are usually loss averse. They don't want to lose something they have. So that, I think that I see that tension a lot. Yeah, I think we do see that tension a lot. And I think we could do more to show the benefits that everyone would have if um, certain solutions were adopted, right? So it kind of gets into you know, some of the corporate issues, right? I mean, there's, there's people who have been, um, you know, benefiting from profits at the expense of other people's health. So that's where um, connecting people, um, telling stories, um, you know, for example, you know, a a big uh, issue here in Maine has been uh, chemicals called PFAS, which have unfortunately gotten into soils and farmers are having to shut down farms because of these toxic chemicals. Well, how do you, how do you balance off the, the, you know, chemical companies, you know, they they were abiding by the laws that were there. They are getting their profits. They didn't do anything that was illegal, but on the other hand, this is harming people's health. Well, the way you get to that is by telling the stories and this is exactly what has happened here. So, some of the farmers that have lost their livelihoods in Maine have gone before the Maine legislature and told their stories. They said, you know, um, it was recommended that I spread um, municipal sludge on my fields. And this was going to be for fertilizer. It was going to be a good thing. It was recycling this municipal waste. But then it turned out there were toxic chemicals in the waste, which ended up contaminating the water and the hay and the soil and all the things that were going on in the farm. So basically, 
having farmers come forward and tell their story about what happened to them has basically moved the needle on this issue. And now we have uh, bipartisan support to uh, ban these chemicals in Maine. And actually quite a few other states are now working on the same kind of legislation. So it's sort of bringing people's experience and stories in is what can really help to bridge this gap to help, you know, I know people, you know, the chemical companies, you know, they don't want to give up selling these products, but unfortunately they're going to have to do so because, you know, now the, the toxic effects are being demonstrated and the stories are being told in a very personal way that people have lost their livelihood. They've lost everything uh, because of this. So that's kind of an example of how we have to bridge this through using uh, people's stories and people's experience to, you know, show that, you know, you're going to have to lose your freedom to make this chemical and to make a profit from it because other people are being affected in a negative way. Yeah. And I think at the heart of the environmental movement is health and well-being. Like that is, you know, for lo- for all different species and the mutual habitats that we inhabit. So I think that a lot of the stories that we tell really should be about well-being. You know, there's also a justice, you could argue that, you know, justice and fairness is a big part of it as well. But I think it's more common, the issue is health, you know, and that's something we can all relate to, right? Getting to your your example there, that that touches people's hearts to hear of people or other animals getting sick because of, and it's unfair, right? That somebody's um, profiting from something and getting some benefit from it, but at the expense of others' health. That's exactly right. And this argument is happening in a big way uh, all over the country. You know, it looks, if you look at um, examples like um, Cancer Alley, which is um, a section of the Mississippi River between Baton Rouge and and, uh, New Orleans, and there's 140 petrochemical plants along that riverfront nice. there in that area. And for a really long time, um, the residents there accepted this. Um, these were jobs, some of them good paying jobs. But now what they're saying is, you know, this is affecting our health. This is why it's called Cancer Alley, right? The cancer people are dying and yeah, the animals dying. are dying. Yeah. Yeah. And they also, by the way, had the highest COVID death rates in the country. And so people are standing up now and saying, um, you know what, this is enough. We've had enough of this. We are not allowing any more of these plants to be built here. Um, and so, yes, it's affecting people's health and they're standing up and telling their story uh, about that. Um, and that's that's changing uh, where we're headed. That's changing the future. Yeah, like for, for environmental justice, it's you would you could also say it's more about having a shared burden. Like if we're going to produce these chemicals, then we need to share in the cost and risks and not just put it onto the poorest people. And if we're uncomfortable sharing those risks for the privilege to share those health risks, then we need to stop making these chemicals, which is where I'd like to be. Oh, yes, I I agree with you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, Sue, in your book, Advocating for the Environment, you often discuss the key role of influencing decision makers. Can you expand on some of the lessons you learned as an environmental lobbyist and also working in the government? to help us understand how to strategize for effective political lobbying on behalf of nature, wildlife, environmental justice, healthy living environment, just uh, like political lobbying tips. 
Yeah. So this, in a way, is part of the, my motivation, actually, for writing the book, because um, advocacy for a lot of people is kind of a big, scary word. Um, but when you come down to it, advocacy really is about creating um, relationships with decision makers. So decision makers are people, right? They're your city councilors, um, state legislator, your town select board, uh, people in Congress. They're all human beings. And so what advocacy is really about is about getting to know them and getting to talk to them and creating a relationship so that you can ask them to change. You can ask them to support the policies that you want them to support. Um, so that's what working with decision makers is really about. I have a whole chapter on this in the book. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you an interesting little anecdote is that I've worked with the um, Garden Clubs of America which is, it's a big organization. They have uh, 200 garden clubs across the country. And what I've said to them is, you know, you are perfect uh, for doing uh, advocacy work. You are perfect for being lobbyists because as a garden club member, you joined a club because you wanted to have relationships with other people and you know about relationships. You know what to say and what not to say uh, to have somebody be your friend or to have somebody uh, be in your camp. So that's, it's the same thing with decision makers. I, I, I told the garden club people, I said, you're already qualified mm. uh, to be lobbyists because basically this is about creating relationships with people who are in positions where they can make decisions. So that is a really quick overview, but it is all about that and understanding. You need to understand the decision makers and where they are coming from, what, what pressures are on them. Um, are they in a place where they need to show leadership on an issue? Maybe your issue is the one they can do that with. Or are they in a place where they have to go along with their caucus or their party? So they just yeah. can't do much for you right now. And how would you get around that? So it's all about that relationship and creating something that can work so that decision maker can support you. Now, I do also make a distinction between um, that kind of advocacy and direct action. So direct action is more like when you're out on the street and you're demonstrating uh, for an issue. And so it's not working with decision makers. It's actually trying to work with the media to draw attention uh, to an issue. And I just make that distinction because there are a little bit different skill sets um, involved in direct action and in advocacy. Um, both are very important. Both are needed. They can work together. Um, but usually different people are attracted to different kinds of work. Uh, my certainly my work has been almost entirely working with decision makers in the state legislature. Um, that's where I've been effective and comfortable. But I know other people well who are much better at organizing marches and doing things in the street to get attention on an issue. So these are just different kind of disciplines within the whole idea of the environmental movement. Um, but working with decision makers really isn't hard. And I always tell people the place to start is where you know somebody. So if you know somebody on your town council, or it could even be somebody in your homeowners association, let's say you want to get rid of pesticides being put on the lawn in your condominium. Good example. Right. Yeah. I mean, then you need to go make friends with your homeowners association people so you can talk to them about, gee, maybe we ought to go to a non-toxic uh, lawn care program. Right. So yeah. it's all about, yeah, where you know somebody. If you happen to have a cousin in Congress, great, go for it, work in, with Congress. But I don't do a whole lot of work myself with Congress because I just don't know anybody there personally very well. Um, if I were to go that route, I'd want to join up with a group that already has some relationships ah. there. 
Because going in like the Sierra Club or again, the gardening club or something, you'd feel more confident if you went and met with your senator or your House of Representatives um, person. That's exactly right. So I'm thinking of joining a group now called the Citizens Climate Lobby, and they go to Congress twice a year. And I would go with them because I think we could actually get something done. Whereas as an individual, not really knowing anyone, I probably couldn't be all that effective. Because I think this is the part, and actually this is the part where I don't do as much. I'm more into perhaps the direct action or more of the educational side of kind of raising awareness and hopefully getting people on board to to collectively uh, pressure their decision makers. But then I don't spend a lot of time one-on-one building those relationships that you're talking about. I like I'll send letters oftentimes or petitions all the time <laughs> to political leaders, but I really don't go down to the state capitol, even though I live in Atlanta and it's right here. <laughs> I can see it from my campus. But yeah, I don't go in that building. And, you know, and so that's something I guess I've been intimidated to do that or wouldn't, or maybe I would think it was futile, like you mentioned, like as an individual going and saying what I think they should do. Um, so I guess, yeah, how do you, I guess you're saying if if I joined a group like the Sierra Club or the Citizens Climate Lobby, then we would organize together and maybe go with a couple of us or something like that. Yes, that's exactly right. So, um, you know, people do have, uh, or organizations, I should say, do have paid lobbyists. And so, um you know, if there's an environmental group in your area, like the, a chapter of the Sierra Club or yes. some other group, you know, getting to know them is a great way to do it. And then they're organizing. So, for example, um, you know, we had a bill here to put uh, climate education into our K-12 curriculum, public school curriculum here. Ooh, great so idea. There were, yeah, it was awesome. There were environmental groups that were organizing people to write letters and testify on that bill. So I didn't have to actually go and create a relationship personally with a decision maker, but rather I um, joined this group effort and um, and I testified on this bill along with like 95 wow. other people who came forward and said, yeah. yeah, I think this is a good idea. We want this. So working with um, you know groups, community groups or environmental groups in your area is a really great way because um, they already have relationships with yes. makers. You're listening to Radio Free Georgia. This is In Tune to Nature. I'm host Carrie Freeman talking with author and environmental lobbyist and organizer Sue Inches about her book titled Advocating for the Environment. Her website is sueinches.com. Sue, your book ends with uh, a chapter listing reasons to be optimistic. So that's a good way for us to end the show. Can you share some of the top reasons for our listeners to be hopeful about the possibility of our society achieving a healthy environmental future and living in alignment with the natural world? So there are so many reasons to be hopeful. And yet it's still hard because we're bombarded with bad news every day about the climate, about pollution, uh, all of these things about violence, about, you know, uh, problems with democracy. But the truth is, actually, there are many reasons to be hopeful. And what I see is the world is waking up, that people are realizing, just like I mentioned with Cancer Alley a few minutes ago, um, for the longest time, people who lived in those areas basically didn't do a thing. And then now they're organized. They're saying, hey, we don't want this stuff in our neighborhood anymore. We've, We've suffered enough. So people are basically finding their heart power 
and using it to tell their stories and to make change happen. So I see a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Um, environmental rights uh, is one of them that I've actually worked on. And mm -hmm. when I say environmental rights, what I'm talking about is that people should have the right to a clean and healthy environment. Everybody sort of thinks this is fundamental, right? We have to breathe, we have to drink clean yeah. water, but there's nothing actually that is guaranteeing us those rights. And so what we've seen is, you know, the water sources becoming privatized. We've seen all kinds of pollution that are, you know, pollute the air. Um, but environmental rights is a growing movement. And just last week, um, people might have seen this. There was a case in Montana where a group of children sued the state saying our environmental rights have been harmed by your promotion of fossil fuels. And they testified in court and they actually won. The judge said, yep. Their environmental rights, which are in the state constitution of Montana, were violated. And so now what that means is that um, the state of Montana would have to take climate and pollution into account for any permitting decision they make going forward, which they didn't have to do before. So, you know, I'm seeing right. things like That's this. We're, we're waking up to what we can do to really change how the future is going to look. The Another wonderful reason to be hopeful is technology. Hmm. And so one of my favorite examples of this is a new system called Climate Trace. And Climate Trace basically uses satellites to pinpoint and identify pollution sources. So it used to be um, up until very recently that we were relying on polluters to report how much air pollution they were making. And we were relying on countries, uh, even little countries that didn't have much means to tell us how much air pollution was being emitted in, in their country. Well, now that we have satellite technology and this system called Climate Trace to record all of it, we don't have to rely on people's um, polluters telling us. We actually can measure and pinpoint air pollution from sources all over the world. And this system has already pinpointed 80,000 uh, polluting sites. And the goal, goal, goal actually is that every major uh, pollution site will be cataloged and uh, available online. You can look this up online under climatetrace.org and you can find exactly what chemicals are being emitted into the air and where they are all over the world. It's actually a map. Wow. That's pretty darn exciting. And what, yeah. what it means, this is how exciting it is. It means that if we adopt climate policies, like let's say, for example, uh, a carbon tax is passed, we could actually measure the results now with this technology. See, before we could we could have climate treaties and different things, but it was very hard to, to measure what the results of that was. There wasn't right. really a way to do it. And now there is. So there are many reasons for hope. I've just given you a couple of them, but um, it's we're really going in a, in, a, in a strong positive direction on many fronts. And another one of them um, in your book is that conservative support for addressing climate change is growing. And this is kind of in the U.S. context, because remember, we were talking before about that partisan divide. And a lot of times it's been more like traditionally Republicans not being on board with the climate action and the Democrats uh, trying to get it passed. Uh, what is starting to give you hope about some conservatives uh, making changes there? to be more pro-environment? Well, there's a couple of things going on with that. One is that youth um, in the conservative side of things right. are tend to be very supportive 
of um, climate policies that would create a cleaner and healthier future. So uh, the youth are kind of driving some of the conservative support, quite honestly, for environmental policy. And the other one, the other side of this is um, cost savings. So now that renewable energy is actually cheaper to build than fossil fuel technology, well, basically conservatives are starting to, you know, come over to the side of, wow, maybe we should support renewable energy now because it's actually a cheaper and cleaner source of energy. It doesn't, you know, by supporting renewables, it's not saying that we are siding with Democrats or we're siding with um climate scientists, but it's saying this is the most um, efficient, cost-effective form of energy. So I would say those two things, between the youth and the um, lower cost of doing things that are cleaner, that is bringing conservatives more on, on board with climate policies. And even uh, your book mentions the creation care. So that even gets back to that parenting model of like caretaking. Mm-hmm. That there's a creation care movement uh, within kind of Christian, some Christian conservative circles yep. about taking care of our planet. That's right. And they see and God's biblical, creatures. Yeah, exactly. They see a biblical um, rationale for that, that if God put us here, on earth and it's our job um, as God's children to care for it, um, which is pretty strong actually. Um, and yeah. it's nice to see that happening. And you had mentioned uh, youth in the conservative movement, but in general also on your list here is just young adults embracing diversity and economic equality as another reason to be hopeful. Yeah, so this is really exciting to me that the connection between um social class, uh, the wealth gap, inequality, racism, the connection between that and environmental justice is really exciting because in order for social change to happen, you have to have like a coming together of movements. This has been historically shown to be true. And so we're seeing that now with bringing together, you know, Black Lives Matter and environmental justice. I mean, this is really great. This is what has to happen. And it's all part of that big vision that we started talking about, about valuing all human life and all other life on earth. You know, if we really do value all life forms and all people, then that would bring in these um, social causes into the environmental cause and they would come together, which is really powerful. Right. That, and that's a basis of my human animal earthling identity book is trying to bring the human rights movement and the environmental movement and the animal rights movement together around common values. And and I see that uh, to your point of in the animal rights group on my campus, uh, the Peace Club at Georgia State University, like even in our logo that the students designed, they not only have a cow because it's a vegan vegetarian group and an avocado there, but there's a earth and then, but there's also a solidarity fist, you know? So it's like, they're trying to combine care for the earth, other animals and, and, and humans, human animals Um, that, that like our group is not just narrowly focused on just eating plant-based or whatever outside of the context of also social justice issues and larger environmental issues. So I like how the Gen Z is bringing all these issues together and expecting, they're expecting that we handle all of these things mutually and not just prioritize one cause over the other to, you know, to the exclusion of gender or other 
you know, issues, which I think is really cool. It's really cool. And the traditional environmental movement is also embracing this. Yes. There's been like some studies that were a while back now that showed that at one point in time, environmental movement was largely white and male run. Right. And that was kind of like a big awakening. Um, and that was probably 20 years ago. And now, you know, what you're seeing is leadership from all different um, sectors and backgrounds uh, in the environmental movement. And, and, and we're seeing frontline communities, you know, with their own leaders. Um, and it's really exciting to, to see this. Right. And I do think also because of the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, it's it's also was a wake up call to all social movements, but environment and, and animal rights movements, actually, uh, to get more female leadership, more people of color um, in, in a leadership role. Um, it's absolutely not only is it fair, but it's better and it's necessary. So th- these are all things to be excited about. Well, we just have like a minute or so left, Sue, but to wrap up, if our listeners wanted to get started now becoming an effective advocate for environmental issues, what are a few key things they could start doing? Well, you know, the first thing I would say is join a group. Yeah, You know, it's actually been proven that when people are part of a group, they feel stronger and more empowered to do things. And I think what I see sometimes is people feeling very overwhelmed by themselves you know, here's little me and what can I do against these big, huge, you know, problems. So the first thing I would say is find a group and or even create one. Yeah. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories about this is um, about uh, Cancer Alley and um, Sharon Levine, who basically this woman, um, she's a black woman, special education teacher. Um, she was in her mid fifties and she became concerned about Cancer Alley and the environmental pollution and cancer in her family. But she didn't know anything about organizing, Um, but she went to her church and she got a little group together of five or six people and started talking about this. And then they did a little bit of um, organizing and a little bit of demonstrating saying, we don't want more chemical plants. And that was the start of a movement right there. So it's really, it can be as small as that, a few group of people in, you know, in your housing development or, um, a few people in town or your neighborhood that care about some particular issue, that's a really great way to get involved is to to form a group or find a group that feels the same way that you do. And build those relationships, like you mentioned earlier, by yeah. talking to people and really listening to what their concerns are at the core mm-hmm. and making those connections. And you have a better chance of kind of influencing people, not only decision makers, but just your neighbors and other people around. That's right. Exactly. Oh yeah. I'm a big proponent of joining lots of groups and finding out about all the action items and then feeling empowered that we're all working on a certain thing initiative yeah. together. And in, and collectively we're making a difference. Um, that's definitely keeps my, my hopes up. Well, yes, that's absolutely. the end of our show, but I want to thank you, Sue Inches, for being with us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. Thanks for the environmental work you've done at state agencies and for helping others to become effective advocates for the environment through your teaching, consulting, and through your book. Thank you so much, Carrie. It was wonderful to be here. Yeah. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature, broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time online at WRFG and on Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com slash to nature. 
The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board, staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman, asking you to please support independent, non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. And remember to take care of yourself and others, including other species on our shared planet. Thank you for listening. Cheers.